0: your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to The Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to The Ghost Story Guys. I'm Renna Store. I'm Paul Bestel. And this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 152 are coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. Paul, my friend, it's only been a week since we've spoken. How you doing, man?
1: I'm all right. I'm all right. It's been a strange week. I feel like I'm channeling the spirit of Art Bell because not only have I heard a strange bug, but I bent over to change some cat litter earlier and pulled my back. So, uh, I'm, uh, I'm suffering for my, uh, Middle age, I think.
0: <laughs> I, you know, funny <laughs> you say that because I woke up this morning and my lower back hurt too. So I've reached <laughs> that point. It's, I guess it gets us all in the end.
1: Yes. I'm used to making comedy injuries. I've made it a specialty over the years. Um, like at school, I once trapped my finger in a door frame that opened and it closed on it and my Oof. finger split. <sighs> and, uh, and I went really funny and decided to pass out unconscious and face plant the desk and then Good the chair, Lord. and then the floor and and broke my nose. And because it was the eighties, they cleaned me up and said, you'll be all right, son. <laughs> and I wasn't sent home.
0: Yep. No, that's that was the eighties. It was a different time. As we're going to be talking about later <laughs> on the show, it was uh, a, less, a less structured time when it came yeah. to childcare.
1: Yeah. I mean, you are talking to a man that's still got glass in his head, From a game of stoned cowboys and Indians with cap guns 30 years ago. So comedy accidents are something I like to think is a a forte of mine.
0: I remember that story. That's where you jumped up into the light bulb.
1: (laughs) The unbreakable light bulb. Clearly not. No, they're not.
0: Oh boy. Well, all right. (laughs) As I mentioned, later on, we're going to be telling some stories of uh, dubious parenting. And that is because this episode is a glitch in the Matrix. And I've been really looking forward to this one. We've been collecting stories for a little while now. And this is, again, we're recording this in advance because obviously Christmas is coming. Ho, oh, ho, ho. Oh, indeed. Ordinarily, we would do a winter-themed episode, but I didn't want to. So instead, we are, we are doing stories that show the world, Well, it's a, as we always do. It's a hell of a lot stranger than we think it is. Uh, but this time, it's stranger in ways that even we may not have foreseen. Uh, especially the last story it might be one of my favorite stories we've ever told on the show. Mm. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, it has been an uneventful week for me, as I mentioned. I've been going to see, see some movies. I am very excited for Avatar two. Uh, I'm excited enough for both of us. So
1: <laughs> I'm glad you are. <laughs>
0: uh, well, like I told you, I bought a ticket for tomorrow at five. But if we finish this early enough, I might go tonight too. Hmm. So.
1: Yes. I've spent the day scanning the Christmas scheduling, desperately looking to see when Monsters versus Aliens is on. I don't think I know that one. I absolutely love that film. It's a kids' film. <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh and it's uh essentially uh, a comedy. Is it Reese Witherspoon who plays the title character and she gets zapped by a meteor and becomes a gigantic woman? And, I, rem- uh, I remember have to that one protect now. the protect the earth from an alien invasion. And I saw it by accident about five years ago on Christmas over here. And I was mesmerized. I was literally like I was 10. That's great. I couldn't take my eyes off it. So I always make a, a beeline at Christmas to see when it's on because I love it. It's such a really funny film. It's one of those kids films that's really quite twisted. And for a bit of a geek like me who loves those old 50s monster movies, it's absolutely lovely. Love it.
0: I remember seeing it in theaters when it came out. And I think it was, it was one of those films where if you didn't have that background you know, appreciating those classic monster films. I think maybe it, it, it didn't land as well because I, I, I enjoyed it, but I remember I don't I don't think it was a, a big hit. I think it was in that, that sort of period where DreamWorks was mm. doing stuff like Mega Mind that just mm. wasn't landing yeah. very well. I, I think it was DreamWorks. Yeah. But uh oh that's great. I I love when you get those sort of left of center Christmas movies that, that just kind of become part of, of like your your routine at that time of year. Like Harvey. Oh really? Harvey's another one. <laughs> yeah all right folks as you can tell this is gonna be a looser episode because by god it's a holiday we're gonna have some fun eggnog that well okay we're not gonna we're not gonna do eggnog but well i'm not gonna do eggnog. i have a, <laughs> I have a diet coke it's got kind of a festive look i think there's a snowflake on the can somewhere mm. but uh yeah so it's a holiday episode just not holiday themed because boo that shit's boring and played out instead paul and i are gonna be sharing stories of glitches in the matrix but first We have to thank our patrons. This
1: one's for the patrons.
0: That's right, patrons. Now, as we mentioned, this is a get-ahead episode, so we're going to thank all our new patrons on the next episode. So everyone who signs up between episode 151, All Aboard the Dream Train, and the new year, will be thanked on the next episode. But for now, we just want to say thank you, thank you, thank you. This is our last episode of 2022. And so we want to say thank you for all your support about through these last two years. You guys are fucking great. We appreciate the hell out of you. And we cannot wait to see where this takes us all next year. So if you want to join the team and get your shout out on the next episode, head to patreon.com slash ghost story guys. That's patreon.com slash ghost story guys. We'll tell you at the end of the show about all the cool shit you get. But for now, we'll just say, if you want an ad free feed and who doesn't, ads suck. For a dollar a month, you get an ad free feed. And you can get that at patreon.com slash ghost guys. All right. Final shout out of 2022 to our composer, "A rainy days for ghosts. Rainy days for ghosts is of course, the project of film journalist and composer, Jerry Smith. If you want to hire Jerry for your next project, shoot him an email at rainydaysforghosts@gmail.com. at gmail.com. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Well, as we said, we're going to be doing stories of glitches in the matrix to round out 2022, and there's some really cool stuff coming up, but because we're recording this ahead of when we ordinarily would, we're not going to have any email. We're not going to sort of do that. We just thought we'd, uh, again, because it's Christmas and we're taking a, we're taking it easy, <laughs> I thought I would ask you, and we, we could swap a few stories of amusing Christmas experiences or Christmases that uh, went badly you know, you made a plan and then, okay, this, this didn't quite go as I'd hoped. Is there anything, anything that, uh, that jumps out at you?
1: One of the first Christmases I was living in Sheffield and I went back to my parents for Christmas day. So they came and got me. And <laughs> as I was leaving, everybody else was, because everybody else had gone to bed at like 5am, so <laughs> basically walking through cans and ashtrays <laughs> to get out of the house and uh and, and i thought hmm i don't think because the idea was that they were going to put the turkey in the oven before they went to bed right and when i left at 10 a.m there was nothing in the oven <laughs> so so we we went and i came back two days later and uh apparently they'd eaten christmas dinner at 2 a.m because <laughs> they, it, 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 it they ended up that the turkey was too big for the oven so they had to cut half its ass off oh jesus so it'd fit in right and then obviously they had to cook it for like four and a half hours and then they realized that after, essentially they'd run out of everything because they just not planned it which made right. my plan to to spend christmas with my parents a real great idea because i wanted food and um <laughs> For two days. And so when I came back, it literally looked like somebody put some Semtex up a turkey's bum <laughs> and, and just blown it up. I don't know how you can get turkey on as many surfaces as that. I don't know what was going on when I came back. I'll say that much. Um, so, yeah, that was a very, and it was also a strange week because about three days later, we were having a few friends round, and it was one of those shared houses where you had to put a token in the electricity meter. Oh, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. And so we were all, in fact, it, was it New Year's Day? Yeah, New Year's Day. So we're all sat there and we were watching Predator. And we're all sat around, brilliant, fantastic. And then it just went, power off. Thought you put some money in the meter. Oh, I knew I'd forgotten something. Brilliant. So 12 hours, New Year's Day. No lights, no electricity, no Oh, fun. God. <laughs> Where are the candles? Candles! So... <laughs>
0: Now, could you not just put more money in the meter or? or? or
1: no, in those days, you had to buy a special token from a special shop. Oh, uh, and you okay. And put it in. So it wasn't one of them, like as we used to call them, council p- piggy banks, where right. you used to have like tellies. When you were kids, when we were kids growing up, some of, us, some of your family and stuff, they'd have a telly where you had to put 50 pence in.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I remember Nick telling about those.
1: And uh, so this one was one of those where you went somewhere, you bought a special token that you stuck in it, and then it just went bing, and gave you power.
0: <laughs> wow! What a great time that was.
1: Oh, it sounds like we're talking about the the days of Charles Dickens. But
0: uh, <laughs> well, I didn't want to say it. But
1: <laughs> that's New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety seven. What a great start to the year! The year got considerably better after that point. It was onwards and upwards. I remember
0: um, some of my tenants back when I still owned my house. This couple who lived there after I moved out, and they, they were super cool. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, charged them as low, as low a rent as I could possibly afford just because I liked having them there. They were, they always took care of the place, but they asked if I'd ever been up to my attic and I had not because <laughs> why the fuck would I go in an attic? So they went up there and they found these old newspapers and these old letters. And one of them was from the depression and it was from the power company to the resident saying, look, we know times are really hard right now and we're, you know, we're not going to cut you off, but you know, can can you spare anything? Can you even a little bit? would be nice you know anything and i thought what a contrast to the modern era where you know essentially you don't pay your bill they just send a hitman out to shoot you square in the face (laughs) (laughs) you might get a text saying enjoy freezing in the dark but that's 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 it you know are we going to work with
1: you no no no
0: no we're going to use your we're going to use your bones to make bread Crazy. One of my, one Christmas that Nick and I gravely miscalculated, and I think I've talked about this on the show a long time ago, was 2009. Because we we got married in October 2008, 2008. And we were living in England at the time because, you know, we we got married and then we applied for uh, Nick's permanent residence. Now, it it was going to take a long time. So we went back to Canada in early 2009. And, you know, we got settled. And of course, the financial crash had just happened. So Nick couldn't work because she was still on a tourist visa. So I just took whatever work I could find, you know. So I, I worked as a luggage handler and check-in agent for a passenger ferry. I worked as a data entry clerk. I worked as a mover. Like I, whatever temporary jobs came up, I would take. And so by the, by the end of the year, I ended up with a pretty regular gig working for this property management company. So we actually had a little bit of cash. And we thought, oh, well, you know, we, we didn't get to see my family last year, um, you know, because we spent Christmas in England with Nick's family. So, oh, this year, well, you know, we'll go to Revelstoke. But I, I just still didn't have a driver's license. I didn't get a driver's license until the next year. And Nick could drive, but we didn't have a car. So we thought, okay, well, because the way it works with flying to Revelstoke, you can't fly to Revelstoke. You have to fly to the nearest airport, which is two, about, two, about two and a half hours away, in, maybe about two hours away in good weather. You know, in winter can be three, can be more. We couldn't find anyone to come pick us up from the fucking airport. There would be, you know, no one was willing to try to drive on the highway in the winter. And so we thought, okay, well, we can't go to Revelstoke this year. Uh, Let's go to where can we fly? Where can we fly direct from Victoria? Oh, Las Vegas. So we went to Las Vegas for Christmas. (laughs) And my beautiful bald friend, there is no more depressing an experience. Then Christmas in Las Vegas.
1: <laughs> I'm Sure, I've seen that film.
0: Oh man! Well, if did they weep all the way through it? It was <laughs> holy Christ.
1: I would imagine they will do on the Hallmark it, Channel.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it was the Western consumer experience, but but walking through it like it was a, like it was a museum. It, it was horrifying. I mean, everything was very pretty and everything was done up. You know, we we stayed at the Hard Rock Hotel, which was fantastically strange because at the time it had this very horny aesthetic mm-hmm. you know there was all this just all these little weird yeah it was very it's very horny aesthetic and <laughs> everyone else who stayed there was you know, even at that point i was only 26 but everyone who stayed there was you know 20 and ridiculously attractive so i'm walking through you know looking like a gorgon and i'm walking <laughs> through the hallways there's these golden men and women these young kids just horse playing and dicking around it, it, it like, like I was a side character in someone's sex comedy <laughs> you know the, the guy who's got like the white boxers and you know as they're driving away they spray me with the like the, the, the car goes through a puddle and sprays my newspaper with water or something I don't know it was it was tragic um and for Christmas di- for Christmas dinner we went and did the buffet at the Bellagio and again there is no more bankrupt an experience just like spiritually bankrupt experience than Christmas dinner in a Las Vegas casino at a buffet. <laughs> oh, man. And I, after a couple of days, you know, we, we were looking at each other and said, well, let's never do this again. Agreed. <laughs> you know, I, I'm very much a friends and family kind of person, you know, to see, you know, to see everyone at Christmas because it's just, that's kind of how I was raised. I was raised with, with a big family. Hmm. And it it was actually weird, and I'm sure other people have had this experience, but when my grandparents died, because they were my paternal grandparents, and that's kind of where everyone gathered for holidays. After that, it was sort of like each individual family kind of splintered off into their own little thing. Uh. So that was sort of the, I mean, there was a couple attempts at doing that kind of thing, you know, for a while, but mostly it seems like everyone kind of does their own little family dinners now, which was always kind of a bummer, you Mm -hmm. know, because I always remember the big like house full of people and- yeah, yeah, that that was, like I said, that's what I grew up with and that's kind of where I'm where I'm at my happiest, but just not something that happens as much anymore.
1: Yeah, I remember we we had a family. Our family was very much like that. And the first Christmas after it, everything had fallen apart. My family was Christmas 1999. And it was essentially like a Christmas carol that uh, we'd gone from having a house full of laughter and full of people to me, my ex, soon to be, My mum had just got divorced. My grandfather had died and my brother's girlfriend had left him. So so it was just us four, sat around the Christmas table, honestly. Hey, (laughs) dear. It was like an episode of Steptoe and Son. (laughs) You know? It's one of those things when you, and then like the year before, there'd there'd been like 12 people there. Yeah. And this year there was four people and we were all fed up, pissed off, sad. Yep. Yep. (laughs) Just like. Oh, how much more Jedi's gonna add today? Didn't let me.
0: <laughs> I've definitely Thank had Christmases a like <laughs> that.
1: I'm glad. I'm glad. I've definitely had that experience. <laughs> a lot of light, a lot of laughter these days, a lot of love.
0: When we had the store, we would work on Christmas mm. because it was, you know, it was a family store. So it mm. was just we would all go hang out there and we'd be there in case anyone needed groceries. And but when when things got kind of dicey is when people would want deli. You know, people would come and oh, you're open at Christmas. Well, the problem is we're pasted. We're absolutely smashed. <laughs> and so you want you want you want me to operate the Debtless slicer. And I am I am full of Bailey's. I am my my blood is 80% Bailey's right now. And I have never been more cautious operating machinery yeah, than on that day. Oh man. And the, the customers came in. One of the customers, it was Betty who lived next door. She came in. She said, Boy, you guys were sure all happy yesterday. Well, yeah, man. We were pissed, like real pissed, and every year we i think we had the store for six years every year we would we would be open on Christmas Day and we'd just be over there getting gooned and uh very, very cautiously, cutting deli meat and cheese oh man i used to, that that was actually one of my some of my fondest Christmas memories you know is it the the days leading up to and folks, obviously, this has nothing to do with ghosts. So you, you, the time codes are on the episode if you want to skip to the stories. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, Christmas was a very busy time for the store. And we would we would have a lot of orders for deli trays. And so me, my mom, and my sister would be in the back of the store putting together these trays. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, we had – there were other employees who would kind of work the front and then come help us. And, man, those are some of my favorite Christmas memories, just being back in that store rolling up, you know – uh, Black Forest ham, mm. and cubing up cheddar, and building these nice, beautiful trays for these people. Mm. And uh, I remember, you know, yeah, those were days where, you know, sometimes you know, your family, you fight and shit. And but those were days where there's there's none of that stuff. We just went home, and everyone was very, very happy. And like I said, some of my favorite holiday memories mm. are uh, working, which is probably explains a lot about me. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> just. Uh, just really lovely.
1: Mm. I mean, technically, I used to work every Christmas day because the pub didn't use to empty till about 3 a.m. on Christmas <laughs> Eve. So, so mind you, by that point, I didn't give a shit. Yeah. Like half Halfway through a bottle of JD. I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Third bottle of shampoos. whatever. That's know? great. <laughs> I remember one, we once did it, and we had a lock-in Christmas Eve, and we just put music on, and there was about 50 people stayed behind. And then we just put, I think we i forgot what we put on, but we ended up doing a conga around the pub, or everybody in the pub. And we all oh, went, that's da, da, great. To the Beatles, I think. All you need is love. <laughs> round and around the pub. Oh, man. Around the song. Brilliant. Hammered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Makes up for being a child looking for leftover baby sham. Yeah. <laughs> We always had a very strange tradition where I grew up was that the pub would open Christmas day lunchtime. Right. Because obviously, you know, men go drink, women stay cook. Of course. <laughs> that type of <laughs> old school mentality. So right. I used to go down as a young man, you know, well, I'm all right. You know, folks, are doing the Christmas dinner, probably just want us out of the way. I can't watch football on the telly. <laughs> Best get out of the house for a bit. Right. Noel Edmonds isn't on. so get out, and you go down to the pub for a couple of hours, have three or four pints. And it used to be quite funny when you were a young man watching all these middle-aged men. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I knew. (laughs) What awaited me 20 years hence. And it'd get to about half past one, two o'clock, and the phone would start ringing behind the bar. (laughs) (laughs) And then your landlord would put his hand over the phone and go, Brian, 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 time to go, son. (laughs) (laughs) He's, He's just left. Yeah, yeah, five minutes ago. He's on his way. All right, bye bye. Put the phone down. <laughs> Bing, bring. Oh, Steve. Steve. It's time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's just left. He's just gone, love. And that's all he'd do for the last hour till the show oh, it after. <laughs> just brilliant. all these people being told, being checked up on. And you'd see people like quickly run to back. Give me three pints. Deep. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm, ready. I'm ready for Christmas now. Right. <laughs> See you later, everybody. Bye. <laughs> ten shots. Give me ten bunkers. Ten bunkers now. Jesus <laughs> Christ.
0: Well, that has been me and Paul talking about Christmas because, by God, it's the holidays and what the hell. And if you're still <laughs> listening, then you love this crazy-ass thing we do. And if you skipped ahead of the stories, I get it. I get it. And now it's time for the stories. The Answering Machine As far as what people call the paranormal goes, my life has been unremarkable. Except for one afternoon in 2004. At the time, I was living in my first apartment, a small one-bedroom in LA, in Northridge. It was mid-afternoon, and I was bored, so I called my friend Greg. I had a cell phone back then, but it was really only for when I was out of the house, so this was a landline call, and Greg's answering machine picked up. The message I left was simple. Hey Greg, it's Dave. Just calling to see what you're up to. I'll call later. Bye. Afterward, I hung up left the house. Later in the day, Greg called me back and opened the conversation with a strange statement. Wow, that was some message you left, man. Who was that girl you were talking to? He said. I had zero idea what he was talking about, and I told him so. Hey, man, it's fine if you don't want to tell me who she is, but don't be weird about it. Greg, I told him, if I had a girl over at my place, I wouldn't be talking about anything else. What the hell are you talking about? He paused, then told me I should probably come over to his house. When I got there, he showed me into his kitchen, where the answering machine was plugged into the wall. He hit play, and my understanding of the world fell apart. As it turned out, the message I left him didn't end the way it had for me. After the part described above, I went on to have a conversation with a young woman whose voice I didn't recognize. The first part of the message was indistinguishable from what I remember leaving, but the back half of it which went on for several minutes and was absolutely my voice, did not happen when I was on the phone. And yet, somehow, this mystery girl and I kept talking. I told her that I wanted to go play some tennis, but first I had to go down to the shop and work on my car. The message stopped after that. To make this even more baffling is that those things were true. I had wanted to play tennis, and my car needed some TLC, but I hadn't talked about that with anyone. Now, in case there's anyone out there who thinks I was somehow on a party line and hearing the voices of two other people, the male speaker on that message not only had my voice exactly, but my vocal rhythms and figures of speech. As for the identity of the woman, I still have no idea. But there, on my friend's digital answering machine, was evidence of a conversation I didn't have with someone who could not have been present for it. Make of that what you will. All right, so, Paul, I actually. Put that story there because I wanted you to read the next one because the next one made me cry. So (laughs) I I have to know though. I mean, I have to assume you used to have an answering machine.
1: Yeah, everybody did.
0: Yeah. Now, did you do what I did, which you can tell I was not in any kind of professional capacity, where you would leave stupid outgoing messages? Yeah. Did you have like a go-to or did you have, you know, would it kind of rotate?
1: Uh, You just do. Something strange, like, you know, I'm sorry I can't come to the phone right now. I've been kidnapped. (laughs) um, Please come quickly. I'm being held hostage. Uh, I won't be able to answer for a while. I've been abducted by aliens. Those type of things, really. (laughs) Um, Or you go, just leave random things. I used to do it at other people's houses as well. Right. I go to people's houses and they nip to the bathroom and then I go, I'm not answering your phone because I don't like you. And then and then, you know, about a week later they go, Oh, yeah. All right, dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> or you'd also find out which of your friends had answering phones. And then you would ring up and leave strange messages pretending to be strange people, wouldn't you?
0: Sure. Yeah, I don't know. I I I've definitely done that.
1: <laughs> so yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh man. I I used to do that because I've obviously had an answering machine. And I used to work for Radio Shack back in the day. So I got tech at uh at you know cheap prices so you know i had like the new shit even though it's still radio shack but you know i would i would have like the the newest cordless phone or whatever because i was 20 or 22 and i was making money mm. but um i i used to leave messages in voices so one of my one of my most infamous ones that i would i sang the message song in a cookie monster voice <laughs> m for message leave one for me and it would go on from there and I remember I was, I had applied for a job or there was some kind of government thing. But uh, yeah, anyways, they, they, they remember they answered and said, Mr. Storr, uh, <laughs> this is the uh, Canada Revenue Service or whatever it was. And I remember thinking, oh shit, okay, well, there's a lesson here. I'm not going to learn it, but there's a lesson
1: here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, well, you'd bring people and go, hello, yes, this is uh, a message for Stephen. Stephen, we'd just like to tell you that your results are back. And I'm afraid you are positive. It is syphilis. Um, <laughs> and we're not surprised, frankly. You dirty <laughs> Please call us on this number, and then you just give the local STD clinic number. Oh, or you'd ring somebody's parents. You'd ring the home phone and leave a similar message. Hello, I'm just leaving a message for Nigel. Just to remind him, his thrash appointment is on Wednesday <laughs> at 10am. Please <laughs> tell him to ask for Dr. Nobber. <laughs> Take care. Bye. Well,
0: it's funny you say syphilis because I actually worked with a young lady. Where you were gonna go with that? I worked with a young lady, very, very lovely gal, very smart, very funny, but not smart enough because her and her friends were ground zero for a syphilis outbreak in Victoria a few years ago. There was a small group of friends, and syphilis just came roaring back like it was 1885 all over again. And it was these this group of hipster kids just all banging each other and, you know, not taking precautions. And suddenly we're, a, we're, a, we're now a statistically significant syphilis hotspot. So that's my claim to fame. That's, that's what's going on in my resume. Check my LinkedIn. Uh, <laughs> ad- syphilis adjacent.
1: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. The habit. Warning, this one is a weeper. There are a few necessary details you must know in order for this story to make sense. The first is that I am from India, which is important because anyone who's not Indian won't understand how our telephone network here has evolved over the years. Last but not least, I have an uncommon name for an Indian guy. You need to know this because I've changed my name for the purpose of this story. We got our first landline phone installed in the late 90s. Obviously, I can't give you the real number, but let's just say it was four five one nine four eight four. If you were to call from another state, you'd add the prefix 016. I was a kid at the time, and we were pretty happy about the phone, since not everyone in our neighbourhood had one. My mother died young, but back then she was happy and healthy. I also had two older sisters who were in school at that time, the eldest being nine years my senior. My real name comes from combining the initial letters of the names of my two sisters, which is what makes it so unusual. We also had a dog back then, Spitz, who would eventually die in 2007. He was a good boy and lived a full, happy life. Once everyone in the family had a mobile phone, we disconnected the house phone. This would have been sometime in the mid-2000s. A year or two before it was disconnected due to some new government regulations, the first digit of every phone number in our state was changed from 4 to 2. This meant our number became 251. 9484 Now here I must mention a weird habit I used to have of dialing my own one-line number from the landline itself all you'd ever get is a busy signal but for some reason that fascinated me when I was young when I got my first cell phone the habit didn't go away in fact in my free time I used to dial both numbers 4519484 as well as 2519484 always getting the message that the numbers are invalid Nowadays, I'm a grown-ass person with a smartphone working in a good corporate job, and over the years, my habit of phoning the old number had, if not gone away completely, diminished significantly. But then, a few months ago, I'd been sitting idle in my office with no customers when I just picked up the phone on my desk and dialled the old landline. Now, I should specify the message that actually used to be delivered while dialling the number after the initial digit was changed was "Sorry." You seem to have dialed a wrong number. Please check the digits for confirmation. This is what I had heard for years when dialing the old number and that's what I expected to happen. Instead, it began ringing. My heart skipped a beat. I didn't know what to do. My first thought was that the old numbers must have been reassigned and curiosity got the better of me. I wanted to know who would pick up. After all, if anything went wrong, I could always pretend I was representing the company and had dialed a wrong number. Someone picked up and said, Hello. The moment I heard the voice, all the memories of my childhood, everything I had left behind to become the person I am today, came flooding back. My whole world shook. It was my mother, who had died after a brutal battle with cancer years before. I know how insane that sounds, but please believe me. I would know that voice anywhere. It wasn't her voice as it had been towards the end of her life, worn down and brittle, but healthy and bright, the way it had been when we were kids. She sounded young, pleasant, but busy, as if she was doing some household chore and the ringing phone had disturbed her. Hello, she said again. Instantly I became choked by emotion. I didn't know what to do, but I tried to be rational. Surely it had to be someone else's voice. Someone who sounded uncannily like her. I knew in my heart it wasn't. It was her voice. I had somehow done something impossible. It was like having that stupid little habit my whole life had been leading to this. Then I heard Spitz barking. My good boy. Impossibly happy and alive. He always used to bark when the phone rang. ''Hello,'' my mother repeated. ''Who is it?'' All I could say before the sobbing took over completely was, ''Ma.'' She paused for a moment, probably wondering what the hell was happening. ''Son?'' she said patiently. ''I think you dialed the wrong number.'' That was it. I couldn't take it any more. I cried like a baby. It was her. The voice, the tone, the love. My mother was the closest person I've ever had in my life. It was her that pushed me to study hard so I could get into the school I wanted. Her who supported the entire family after my father left. That is, until the day she got sick and no one could save her. It's me, Rohit Ma. I love you. I managed to choke out between sobs. She sounded confused. Rohit, where is he? What's happened to him? Who the hell are you? She shouted. That's when a fear took over me. Fear of the unknown, I guess. This shouldn't be happening kind of fear. Or this is some goddamn devil work playing with your fucking mind probably to drive you insane kind of fear. I slammed the phone down. I was full on weeping now, shaking too much to even stand up. My colleagues were all over me asking the exact same question I couldn't answer. What the hell happened? I passed out. I woke up a little later in one of my customers' clinics, feeling as though I was in a dream. My co-workers told me my blood pressure had dropped to a dangerously low level and I'd lost consciousness. My memory of the call came flooding back to me, but when they asked me what had caused such an emotional reaction, I claimed ignorance. Nothing I could have said would have made sense to them. It still doesn't make sense to me. So
0: I intentionally put that second so you would have to read it because that kind of stuff wrecks me. Mm. This idea that you can reach out even by accident to the past and reconnect with people who are gone yeah. or, or even versions of them who are like, it, it, I don't know what it is there i remember watching the movie um, the time traveler or the yeah, time traveler's wife yeah which was it was not a great movie you know I, I but it was it was fine but there's a moment where the younger version or the older version of the daughter takes her younger self by the hand and they run out to play to outside together it's just a very quick thing very passing moment i had to stifle a sob so intense I thought I was going to I thought I was just going to start weeping in a movie theater. And I don't know why. I don't know what it is about that, but something about that stuff just hits this this thing inside me that just makes me uh just renders me completely useless. So that Paul got that one.
1: <laughs> and I think as well if at any other time of the year, Christmas is the one where thoughts of those we've lost are almost foremost in our minds. Sure. For a chance for, as in that particular story, one last conversation, one last hug, one last memory to bring it all back. And I think often, as we've spoken before about grief and loss and how it affects people in different ways, I think most people, deep down, if they're honest, had an opportunity to call someone that they'd lost in the past. We'd all take it. Maybe. Yeah, I suppose I would. I suppose, even though it
0: would destroy me. I think I would be unable to resist. Um, there, so there's in, in also the other reason I put this here is because I wanted to get the weepy shit out of the way first. So, <laughs> you know, the last couple episodes got pretty heavy. So I'm like, oh, let's get the sad stuff out of the way first. Um, but while digging around, I actually found another story like this. Hmm. Uh, so I'm just going to throw that out here. And then there's a couple other things I was going to bring up. So this was a similar story. And it goes, about 10 years ago in my old house, we had a landline with caller ID. It was early Saturday morning. and I was getting ready for work. My husband had the day off and was just sitting around on the computer while I was preparing to leave when our phone rang. The caller ID said it was an unavailable number. Now, normally we never answered these calls because they were usually solicitors and whatnot, but for some reason my husband felt compelled to answer it. I remember clear as day seeing his face when he said, Hello? He went completely white and said, Hello? again. He hung up the phone and just stood there, looking like he'd seen a ghost. I asked him who it was. He said it was his mom. The line was pretty static, and all he heard was her saying hello once. Then the line went dead. She had passed away the previous year, and he never really talked much about her. He was very close to her, and I think he held a lot in when she passed. He is not one for emotion. He also never believed in spiritual things or ghosts of any kind. He is also not into practical jokes or pranks of any kind. This was the real deal. I have never seen him so shaken up or visibly disturbed by something like this. He started crying and was adamant that his deceased mother had just called him and said hello from beyond. To this day, I still get goosebumps when I think of it. And yeah, again, that would just, I, I would be undone. You know, if, if I picked up the phone, it was my grandfather, I would be undone I, or I, I, a grandfather and uncle. You know, I typically, uh, you know, those would be the two people who I, th- who I would really, yeah. You know, and, and I remember actually, funny enough, I, and I might have t- talked about this in the show before, but you know, I have dreamt of my grandfather a handful of times since he passed in two thousand five. And there was a period early on when every time I saw him, I would in the dream I would cry. And after a while, he started to get annoyed a little bit at that. You know, he kind of wanted me to move past it. And I I sort of had to in order, to, you know, if one would have these dreams. And then eventually, you know, we would start having conversations. And I don't remember them, of course, but you know, they were conversations between people of equal standing instead of a grandfather and grandson conversation. But uh, every time for a while there, oh, I would just be destroyed. And again, I think if that phone call came through, that's exactly what would
1: happen. I think it's always been one of the most interesting aspects of the paranormal and one that doesn't really get much credence these days is some of the work that went on in the, in the seventies and eighties in regards to phone calls from the dead, which really? uh, Dr. Scott Rogo wrote the, uh, A very controversial book, shall we say. But uh, Dr. Rogo is a very strange chap. He collected dozens of such calls where people had received phone calls from deceased loved ones or messages were left on answer phones from allegedly deceased partners, spouses, parents, children even. Um, Some people claimed it was all nonsense and made up. Um, Rogo, obviously, until he's very untimely and uh, strange passing, was adamant that the book was completely genuine. So it's something that doesn't seem to be sort of, I mean, you'll see YouTube stories about it and things, but I don't really think much serious paranormal investigation goes on in this field anymore, which is a real shame because, especially now, I would suggest that more people have access to telecommunications than at any other point in history. Yeah, so absolutely. Are these, I mean, not necessarily landlines because most people have a cell phone or a, or a mobile phone for, for people who know the proper term. Um, <laughs> so I would be amazed if there aren't more of these incidents these days because there's more phones out there. Surely somebody out there is collating this information.
0: I would, I would think so. If anyone out there knows of researchers who are doing this kind of work. uh, Let us know, ghoststoryguys.gmail.com. I'm very curious. I know, I remember hearing hearing a handful of these stories. You know, there was a a story about a woman who was trying to place an ordinary call and she ended up being somehow routed into a call between, I want to say, NASA and the ISS or maybe even predated ISS, but it was someone out in space. Like this was, you know, Elaine from Dubuque Went to go, you know, order a pizza or something, and was suddenly, you know, talking to these these people, these very high powered people who she had absolutely no connection with. Um, and I sometimes I wonder if the digital nature of things, if 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 that has changed the frequency, you know, if there's maybe something different to cell mm-hmm. phones that render them, yeah, you know, like render it more difficult for that to happen.
1: Yeah, and I think that's the thing as well. People always say, "Oh, well, it was probably," especially in the old days. Anybody that had the landline will remember the fun of the occasional cross line you're like hello oh. hello what Who, who's this get off my line you get off my line for five minutes um, <laughs> and stuff usually when there'd been a storm or something or a lightning had hit the mains or something right <laughs> just screwed up the whole network but there are very few things that cause an emotional response than a specific voice or a tone and people will always associate as with a smell or an aroma, there are certain things that you can stumble across and it'll suddenly fill your senses in whatever way that takes you to a specific place and time. Oh, yeah. Decades before, perhaps. And yet people just dismiss that as some kind of coincidence or a cross line or something. And I'm not really sure because most people who've lost somebody know what that person sounded like. And just a random voice on a line isn't going to make that person break down.
0: Of course, yeah, that's it. I, well, I think that's part of the whole thing with with skeptics to get people who just, again, they make these sweeping statements that don't in any way apply to the evidence. Mm. You know, and uh, no, you're you're absolutely right. I, yeah. I again, I would know my grandfather's voice in a second. Yeah. You know, my uncle's voice in a second, even my own father. You know, I mean, you know, if if uh, you know, I had a call from him, you know, beyond the grave, I I would know it in an instant.
1: Yeah, well, it's not just the voice, is it? It's the tone, it's the inflection, it's the terms. Of course, yeah, yeah. It's not just someone going "hello." That's not going to, you know. I mean, I could ring you and go "hello." It's not going to make you break down, is it? I, I don't. I don't know. I'm, sometimes I miss you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when I accidentally ring you at five a.m. I
0: I never forget. I woke up and I'm like, "Fuck, Paul! Paul called me." Oh shit! I hope everything's okay. I was texting you if something's wrong, I'm here for a while. If I fall asleep, I'll leave the ringer on. Just call me back. And yeah, I say it was just a pocket <laughs> dial, and I thought, oh, okay. Well, I'm glad because I was worried. But no, I mean, I, I don't do know that. what I could do for you over here, but I would do it.
1: Yeah. No, it was. I've just woken up. Oh, Brennan sent me a a, a message. Oh, oh, hang on. What's that funny noise? Huh? <laughs> uh, oh shit! Shit, i'm ringing. It's it's five a.m. Shit. Yeah. Remember, note to self, don't touch phone till coffee.
0: Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> one, one last thing before we move on. Uh, as I mentioned to you off air, I recently, I think it was yesterday or the day before, I went to go see the new Steven Spielberg movie, The Fablemans, mm. at, the, uh, at the theater. And the film is essentially, it's autobiographical. It's Spielberg kind of telling the story of his childhood and you know the, the sort of fractured relationship between his mom and his dad and his, how he discovered his love for movies and from what i've read I, I tried to i tried to find a reference to this specific incident i didn't see one but from what everyone says what you're seeing on screen is basically as it happened you know names were changed maybe one or two things were shifted around but what you're seeing is spielberg's uh childhood on screen uh, according to some of the actors he was crying a lot on on set because you know he was directly recreating scenes from his youth you know he he also, he also wrote the script with tony kushner and there is a scene after his grandmother dies, his mother was heartbroken, heartbroken, and went into a deep depression. And then she, one night she woke up because there was a phone call. And this is a part where, again, I'm assuming it's real because it's such an odd thing to insert into a film otherwise. But she woke up because the phone was ringing and it was her mother's voice on the other end. It was very, very staticky. Mm-hmm. But she heard her mother say her mother's voice, and her mother said something to the effect of, "You know, basically you have don't let him in, don't let him in. You have to batten down the hatches, like don't let him in." Then she was gone, and and her husband woke up and said, "Oh, you're having a dream. Just you know, you you, you thought you dreamed the phone rang. You dream you know, hang up the phone." Uh, and and his mother was was much more open and artistic than his father. His father was a very brilliant engineer, but he just didn't have any kind of aptitude for. He wasn't great with you know that kind of thing. And what's interesting is that presaged a visit from Spielberg's uncle Boris. I believe his name was Boris in real life. But he was uh he was a circus performer. He was a lion tamer. And apparently he always kind of freaked the family out because they didn't have a frame of reference for him. You know, they were all very, you know, staid, you know, we, we kind of nuclear family. We all have jobs. And so they didn't know how to make sense of Boris, but Boris helped in the film, at least again, I don't know how, how much this relates to real life, but I believe it's pretty close. Boris had a very frank conversation with, um, in the film, Sammy Spielberg or Sammy telling him that, you know, you've discovered film, you've discovered art and your mother wanted to be a concert pianist, but her mother was afraid of that. She was afraid of taking chances. And I'm here to tell you that, uh, Art is going to separate you from the people you love. Art is going to make it very difficult for your the people who love you to relate to you. Mm. And there are going to be times where you have to choose between art and family mm. and art and love. And it's going to be a very difficult decision. And the takeaway, of course, being that, you know, the the grandmother who had died was, you know, she never wanted to have to ask herself this. She never wanted anyone to have to make this choice. Yeah. So, you know, her warning was, against, you know, because her brother, not because her brother had any evil intent, but because he would bring about this awakening in the boy who was already starting to explore filmmaking in a very, very, you know, simple way. Mm. And I just thought that was, again, if, if it's a, you know, if it's an invention for the screen, fine, but I think it again, it's so peculiar that I think there's probably something to that. And I think it's, again, just a, another example of this strange, the strange currents that move us despite us not wanting to admit that we are being moved. Second Chances To preface my story, I want to say that my older sister Connie is married and lives about three hours away from me and the rest of the family. Bear that in mind as we go forward. In 2010, I had just graduated from college and begun dating Marina, the woman who would eventually become my wife. Since I was still a dirt poor post-student, I was living with my parents, so Marina would pack a duffel bag and come stay with me at their house on the weekends. This one Saturday, we had just woken up and were looking forward to a full day ahead, picking out a new couch at the furniture store, then a trip to the movies with my parents and dinner afterwards. We were both getting dressed, and Marina was leaning down in my closet, getting stuff out of her bag, when I heard her say, What is this? I walked over, looked down, and saw a ring laying there by itself in the bottom of her bag. I asked her when she had bought it. And she said she hadn't. She had no idea who it belonged to. I shrugged and said she should put it on. It was pretty. She picked it up, put it on, and it fit her finger perfectly. We didn't think anything else of it and carried on with our day. Later that evening, we were at the movie theater when Connie texted me to ask about the movie we were going to watch. We were chit chatting via text, and I told her about Marina finding that ring in her bag. My sister then asked me to send her a picture, curious to see what it looked like, and I obliged. Several minutes went by. Then my phone rang. It was Connie. I answered the phone, hearing only silence for several seconds, until Connie spoke up. In a broken voice, she asked, Where did you find it? She had obviously been crying, and I had no idea why. What do you mean? I asked. The ring? We found it in the bottom of Marina's bag while we were getting ready this morning. Connie went completely silent, and then after a few moments spoke again. There's no way. This is not possible. Let me call you back later. Enjoy the movie. When we got off the phone, I was even more confused than I had been, but wasn't sure what else to think or say, so we watched our movie, had dinner, and forgot about it. After I got home, Connie called me back and explained why she had acted so strangely. The ring, she said, was her wedding band, and it had been missing for well over a year. Additionally, she knew it was her ring because it had a small bend slash crease on one side where she had smashed it once. This was strange enough in and of itself, but it gets better. She told me she lost the ring at their home, which was, if you'll recall, three hours away. This happened when she'd taken all the rings off and had set them on the counter next to the toilet. After she had flushed, she slipped and hit the rings, knocking this particular band into the toilet while it was still emptying. The moment stood out to her particularly because she remembers the sound of the band hitting the porcelain of the toilet. She had been emotional about it for a long time, knowing she had accidentally flushed her wedding band down the toilet and hadn't told anyone out of embarrassment. What makes this even more strange is that Marina wasn't even in the picture at the time Connie's ring went missing. At the time, I was in college, and we hadn't met yet. We met after I graduated and moved home, so there's no way she could have retrieved the ring. There's one more piece to this story. At the time of the ring turning back up, Connie and her husband were going through a very rough patch in their marriage. My sister suffered from infertility, and this was driving a wedge between them. She had recently caught her husband entering into the early stages of an affair, and they were close to divorce. The day we spoke on the phone, they'd even been discussing it. When we talk about it now, she looks back to that moment as a thing that convinced her to work at repairing their marriage. They're still happily married and have since adopted a wonderful child who has made all our lives richer. As for me, I still have no explanation to this day how this was even possible. I got to tell you, Paul, I I, I have, I can identify with the craven terror of thinking mm-hmm. you have lost your wedding ring. Yes. Because when I first got married, I would fiddle with it all the time. Mm. And I'd you know, take, put it on, take it off, put it on, take it off. And sometimes just to screw with my wife, I'd go, look, married, not married. Married? Not married, you know, because <laughs> of an idiot. But, but uh, I remember I was in Revelstoke. I was watching The Expendables 2. And I was, I was taking my ring off and I was fiddling with it during the movie and I dropped it in the theater. And I remember hearing it rolling all the way to the front and just bricking it because I thought if someone grabs that and I come home to my wife and say, uh, yeah, so my wedding ring is gone. It, fell off, uh, I'm probably going to get shot. So I I identify with that deeply.
1: Well, of course as well. Canada has given us one of my favorite lost ring stories in history. Really? Mm. There was a lady called Mary Grams, I think her name was. And uh, she was doing some gardening and her wedding ring fell off and she lost it. And she was absolutely mortified. She Couldn't find it. Couldn't find it anyway. She turned the house upside down. Checked all her gloves, tried looking in the garden, could not find it anywhere. So she ended up going out and buying like a copy ring, not telling her husband that she'd lost <laughs> it. Uh, and got away with it for 13 years. And then her daughter-in-law came around to help do some gardening. She was growing loads of veg, and she pulled a carrot out of the ground and wrapped right around the middle of the carrot, which had grown through it, was her lost wedding ring, and it had been in the ground 13 years. No. Yep. Called Mary Graham's. She was from Alberta, I think. Okay. So I think if you if you search for Mary Graham's wedding ring, you'll be able to find the story. And uh, and she just said, yeah, I'd, I'd lost it, and I'd just bought a cheap copy and only told my son. <laughs> <laughs> and then they found it, and it's a carrot. You, they took a picture of the, the carrot with the ring and you can clearly see it's grown through the ring and that's how they got it out because when they pulled the carrot out the ring was wedged in the middle of it unbelievable I've
0: never heard that
1: (laughs) there's loads it's always happening here that there's always weird things like people do the gardening lose something and then 10 years later they find it in a potato or something
0: I I, I had that happen with a golf club but it didn't come out of the ground (laughs) I, we used to hit golf balls off my uncle's property because he lived right on the bank of the river. Yeah. So we would hit golf balls in the water. And one day, yep, the club just went right out of my hand into the river. And five years later, what washed up on someone's dock just slightly downriver, but my golf club. Although, I have one for you that uh, it just someone just told me, and I I haven't asked permission, so I'm going to tell the story. But I won't say who sent it. Uh, they're a friend of mine i just i didn't have a chance to ask but um so this person bought this incredible ornate victorian desk mm. they got it i want to say like 40 pounds they, they got it so cheap this thing's a genuine antique it just needs to be cleaned up so it's haunted
1: then yeah yeah totally yeah yeah
0: <laughs> the other day they were cleaning it up and they they before they brought it in properly they wanted to go through all the drawers and i guess check for bugs and things like this and in order to open the drawers, the smaller drawers, there was a key and it was wedged in there. Mm. So they got the sm- the smaller drawers open and then they went to use the key in the big drawers. Yeah. Didn't work.
1: Mm.
0: Not the right key. And they're like, oh, fuck. Okay, well, what do we do now? And this is where it gets weird. They were talking with their partner about just forcing it open, but they were worried about damaging the desk because again, yeah. it's a legitimate antique. And now my friend ha- has a very keen intuition. Mm-hmm. And something started compelling her. So she stood up, walked outside, in the mud around the back of the house. There is a pile of smashed old tiles. Now they're the renting. They didn't put those tiles there, right? She lifts one of the smashed tiles, reaches into the mud between the concrete and the edge of the path. She sees a glint of silver. It's a hint. Of a key, mm. she pulls the key out of the mud. Now, bear in mind, they bought this dresser from this desk from somewhere off in the city, mm. and they did not know this key was there. Now, the key is not original to desk; it's like a 1970s era key, so it's yeah. not like you know the desk came home or anything. But still, and they they looked at each other and thought, "There's no way. There's no way." And it opened all the big drawers. <laughs> So somehow this, this Victorian desk that they got for a song and was locked in the original key, presumably lost to history, Mm -hmm. was opened by the silver key that they did not even know was there in the muck beneath a bunch of building junk in their backyard. Mm.
1: Clearly they were meant to have
0: that desk. Well, that's what I said. That's what I said. This, this friend and I, we like to talk about the writers, you know, uh, sometimes we, we talk about like the cosmic writers are just lazy. Yep. And stuff happens, and uh, this is very much one of those cases. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, and sometimes it just works out.
1: I've sent you two rings on carrot stories. Okay, <laughs> I've sent you the Mary, and I've sent you one that happened strangely over here the year before, where where a ring had disappeared for twelve years and also came up on a carrot.
0: All right, well, I will post both those links <laughs> in the show notes.
1: <laughs> Carrots, man. That's
0: why I reason I don't eat
1: them. <laughs> Full of jewelry.
0: That's it. You just never know. You break your teeth on those things.
1: (laughs) Underwater. I was four. It was a sunny day in summer and my whole family went to the local pool. It was an outdoor pool that we always used to go to, but I couldn't swim then and always had to use floaters when I wanted to join the adults. The majority of the time, I'd be in the kiddie pools and for short spans of time, I'd have my inflatable circle and go paddle in the adults' pool when I picked up the courage to do so. My parents were always around me when I went swimming, but back in the day, I guess they didn't keep as close an eye on water safety as they do nowadays. On this particular day, after I played in the kiddie pools, I wanted to go into the adult pools with my inflatable circle and kick around. There were lots of people, and as I kicked my way into the middle of the pool, I slipped through and sank to the bottom. I was barely one metre tall and I can only estimate that the pool was between 1.6 and 1.8 metres deep where I sank. I remember struggling to try and get back up but didn't know how to swim and just stayed on the pool floor. I could hold my breath and I could see people swimming over me. I kept trying to touch them hoping they'd notice I was there but they were all too far above so I decided to try to get to the edge of the pool but I started to convulse from the lack of air and all of a sudden I didn't feel the need for oxygen. I remember walking towards the wall underwater and then the next thing I remember was waking up poolside with my mother there. I asked her what happened. Did she pull me out? I wasn't gagging for air. I didn't throw up any water and I was totally fine. My mother looked at me and didn't know what I was talking about. I have thought about that day constantly ever since. I've only told a handful of people about it, but most have said I was probably having a nap by the pool. I've never asked my parents about it since either. Not sure why, but I think if they didn't seem panicked, maybe I did just dream it. But there's always been this voice in the back of my head, not a I hear voices kind of voice but the type that sees you through the bullshit and forces you to contend with the real issues facing you. And from time to time, that voice likes to ask, what if I died in the other reality and somehow my consciousness has transferred into this one? Remember when people
0: were like that? Just let the kid go in the pool? Supervision? What's (laughs) that? Come on.
1: I, it's one of those modern memes where you'll see I don't know if it happens a, a lot in North America but we get it a lot in the, here in the UK where people of a certain age will go oh do you remember the old days where you could do what you want and I think do these people not know how many children died doing <laughs> stupid things and uh, that's, yeah. you know I'm not being flippant about it there's a reason kids have to wear helmets on cycles these days and knee pads and elbow pads when they go skateboarding and we wear seat belts and things it's because lots of people got seriously hurt and just because just because you didn't fall off a bank smash your head through a wall doesn't mean nobody else in the whole country did you idiot get a grip
0: (laughs) oh i couldn't i couldn't agree more i (sighs) i I always cringe when i see those kinds of memes because i think yeah as you say this completely ignores the people who didn't Get through shit, and 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 that's not even to say the psychological damage. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a big fan of this current movement where you know people who let their kids walk to school by themselves are having the cops called on them. Like that's crazy. That that's crazy. Pants. So a kid is, can walk a mile on his own. That's fine. But um, the notion that all kids are fine. I mean, there is a story I heard. Uh, my mother told me this when she was a kid. There was this boy, and he was sitting. In on this sort of sitting on like a concrete the edge of a concrete like a like a bit of a curb I guess so he was sitting below the curb Mm. and so the concrete would have run sort of up his back about midway yeah and one of his friends just thought it'd be really funny to run up and kick him in the back yeah (laughs) and he paralyzed him he fucking paralyzed him and and you know this is again if that if that if he hadn't paralyzed him this would be a story oh you know my friend kicked me in the spine and I was fine.
1: Have I ever told you about the time I used to have a friend growing up that was at my uh, stepfather's mother's? and every, We used to go over every Sunday and uh, used to go and play football with him on the little green between the houses. No. Uh, and I came over once, I was only about eight, eight or nine. And I came over one Sunday and they said, oh, you you can't play with your friend any today. And I said, oh, okay. And they said, yeah, yeah, it's uh, he's, he's not around today. And I thought, oh, okay, no problems. And it was fine. We went, went home. And then a couple of days later, my mum came to see me in my bedroom and said that, unfortunately, I wouldn't be able to play with him anymore because he died. Oh my God. And where they used to live was an old abandoned railway where they used to leave old freight trucks on the line. They just left them all, you know? So the kids used to just go down and play on us. We all used to do that. We all used to play up slurry tips and stuff (laughs) like you're talking about stuff. And um, they'd been playing in this one particular freight car and it had really like proper weighted doors. So once it went, it weren't shutting. And he slipped trying to get out of it or something or they were running through it and he tripped and he fell and the door fell on him, cut him in half.
0: Oh my God. I don't think I've told you this story, but I had a cousin who went through something similar and it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it was basically kids in an industrial site and it went real badly for one of them. So again, I feel like there's there's like a happy medium between uh, you know, here's the key, we'll see you in 9 hours when the street lights come on.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, you know, again, this this idiotic notion that poor people are having cops called on them cuz they they dare to let their kids walk by themselves. Like kids have statistically never been safer. Yeah?
1: Absolutely. Never been safer. This yeah. this
0: we've got this terrible culture that people have this no, this idea that you know, there's helicopters around every corner waiting to take your kids away to Epstein Island. And this shit does happen, but not at the, the level that certain people would have you believe. In fact, there are some really despicable people who use that as an excuse to push their agenda. Mm-hmm. And I really dislike that. Yeah. But that's that's another conversation. That's not a conversation for this show.
1: I but mean, the, yeah. things, the things you see when you're a kid growing up and, and people, I mean, it's like when you, I'm sure we've all had friends who have passed away in car accidents when we're growing up as teenagers and stuff. And you just left to get on with it. Yeah. Nobody nobody comes and looks after you and, and you, know, you know, you don't get any trauma counseling or any grief counseling. Just like, well, unfortunately, your friend's dead. And, yeah, uh, yeah hey, okay, look after yourselves. You take care, everybody. Bye. And you, just, and you look back at it now and you think, what the fucking hell is all that about?
0: I remember a kid I played ball with. Uh, Joe was his name. And he was... Uh, he was playing hockey, he got body checked. And to be clear, this would have happened regardless. Hmm. But he, it turns out he had an aneurysm in his brain and it ruptured. Yeah. And he died. And I don't remember anyone saying a single thing about it. I remember going to the funeral, hmm. you know, because it was, uh, you know, I think they let us out of school to go to the funeral if we were friends with him. But hmm. that was it. As you say, there was no counseling. There was no, it was just like, yeah, well, you're know, up you front one friend. Now you're one friend less. And hmm. Get back to life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... You know, I've told you, told you the famous story about when I obviously I heard the voice and we had the accident. Sure, yeah, yeah. My mate who survived that crash never had any counseling at all. Really? Nothing. Oh, man. He's had to live with with survivor's guilt. Sure. And, and anybody, I think, that goes through a similar situation, there'll be thousands of people that have had, had this kind of experience where something's happened and they've survived. Yeah, Sometimes completely unscathed. And it, it, it baffles me. I mean, in those days, fair enough, it, I would hope to God it doesn't happen these days. Because, I mean, he was such a mess for years after that, not just because of what he'd been through, but everything else that surrounded it. And the fact that the, the parents of the guy that had died were really angry. Course. Their, their son had, had gone and he'd survived. Sure. And I think it's 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 baffling to me when you look back at what people had to go through. It's no wonder people struggle with life sometimes. When you think of the things that we've all had to go through. And people just say, Yeah, they'll be right in a week. Oh yeah. yeah.
0: I think one of the <laughs> the most dangerous sentiments i've ever heard and, and I, I know this more and more now you're know, having grown up and you know I, I know a number of therapists this idea that well kids are tough
1: mm, they'll get no no it.
0: Ki- kids just don't show trauma no. it doesn't mean it doesn't affect them that shit goes deep yep. and to say that oh it's fine you know kids will just roll through it kids used to be tougher no i know that because there's a lot of sh- dipshitty adults running around this planet who were fucking traumatized as kids and were told, suck it up, Jimmy. And now they're out there doing all manner of evil shit because they have unresolved drama.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, there's I mean there's lots of funny things I remember. You know, I mean oh, stuff sure. like we used to we used to go down a forty five degree gradient in a bin bag when it snowed. You know? <laughs> and if you if you didn't bail out in time, you were hitting a wall. Yeah. You know?
0: <laughs> Nick tells stories about uh <laughs> taking a cardboard getting in a like a cardboard box and sliding down her mom's stairs with her oh, brother yeah and and that that terminates in a wall i don't know how they're not
1: dead oh yeah we used to do that all the time yeah you need text all right whoppers we used to have like a, a a spare bed like you'd fold it up single bed and you'd i forgot what they used to be called and you used to like undo it all and it would be like a couple of mattress on it and we used to lay them downstairs and slide downstairs and obviously the mattress would come loose and they'd go ah just falling downstairs <laughs> smacking your head on Artex so you'd come up with third degree burns off the bloody below <laughs> carpet and scratches on your face from the Artex where you'd brush your cheeks down it because it's the <laughs> 80s <laughs> you know I remember we once, we used to go BMX in all the time and we used to go with this one of these local kids who was a bit peculiar well, his nickname was Biscuit, so making that what you will. Sure. And uh he wasn't very good at BMXing, but he still used to do stupid things. And he once went down this jump that we used to do, like a really steep drop. And as he was going, he bounced and he dropped. And he put his pedal through his knee and he just <gasps> fell off. <laughs> and it oh. ripped, ripped all his jeans open. And uh he was like ah! screaming on the floor, so he ran over. <laughs> you could just see his kneecap. Flapping. Oh, flapping like God. that. And luckily, he's, his mum only lived about five minutes walk away, 30 seconds when you're a panicked 13 year old. Sure. Uh, and you run like Usain Bolt. And that's uh, <laughs> an ambulance came, Well, Took him away. And he, he had, smacked, I think he'd fractured his kneecap. He had to have like 47 oh, stitches. Man. He'd done ligament damage. Had to have like a pinned cast on his knee <laughs> for about eight oh, months. Oh. And that was just, you know, mucking about a Saturday afternoon on your bike.
0: The past was horrifying, folks, and don't <laughs> ever let anyone tell you different. Yeah, it's
1: the tip of the iceberg.
0: I believe that. <laughs> <laughs> Roommates. This happened only a couple months ago, and I almost had to get a roommate exchange because it frightened me so badly. It was a normal Saturday morning and I was laying in bed surfing the internet and just generally being a lazy college freshman. It was about 11.30 or so, and my roommate jumped up from his bed, slipped on a hoodie, grabbed his keys, and told me he was headed out to get breakfast. I watched him step outside and close the door, and then settled back into my browsing. A few minutes passed, and I heard the bathroom door in our dorm click open, and out-walked my roommate, wearing a towel looking fresh out of the shower. I was dumbfounded. It obviously showed him my face as he asked if I was feeling okay. I shook it off, thinking I must have just gotten engrossed in my browsing and lost track of time and hadn't noticed him coming back. He headed back into the bathroom for some reason, and I looked at the clock on my computer. It was only 11.45. Still, I pushed it out of my mind, thinking that maybe I had just imagined him leaving to get food. Still, I pushed it out of my mind, thinking that maybe I just imagined him leaving to get food. But then, after a couple more minutes, I heard the signature sound of a key opening our dorm door. And there was my roommate, in the same hoodie he put on when he left, hair dry, with a to-go box full of food from the cafeteria. It was about eleven fifty. I jolted up and ran to the bathroom to check if he was in there. Nothing. The shower wasn't wet, and there was no fog in the bathroom. It unsettled me so badly I had to leave for the rest of the day, and I became very uncomfortable around him. Hell, I'm still uneasy around him, and I still cannot explain what happened and I think the thing that shocked me about this one Paul obviously just a quick story but is the fact that the roommates bother telling each other <laughs> where they're going like I right now living in Montreal as I am obviously I have roommates because I couldn't afford my own apartment this is my first experience with roommates and I got to tell you we, there, there is there is zero communication like <laughs> every time I leave the apartment I may as well be joining John Galt in the invisible valley never to return <laughs> Like they and they would just wouldn't care. I could come back draped in animal skins and bearing a club soaked in the blood of my enemies, and no one would ask a single question. <laughs> and, and in fairness, it works both ways because I only just recently asked my one roommate which country he's from, and we've been living together three months. I asked him three days ago what country he's from because he'll refer to my country, and finally, I went, Where is that exactly? And the only time I've been remotely curious otherwise is one of my roommates came back with a giant bag from Coach. And I thought, you can afford to shop at Coach. What the fuck are you doing living here? <laughs>
1: yeah. So he can afford to shop at Coach.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that's
1: exactly it. Uh, yeah, what do you think of that one? Interesting, isn't it? It is. It's, it's quite a strange thing because I've I've never lived with anybody I didn't know. Right. I've lived in lots of shared houses over the years, some better than others. <laughs> No doubt. Some that didn't have a mountain of of, uh, solidified sugar stuck to the kitchen floor. Um, (laughs) Some whose baths weren't so dirty, even bleach for four days didn't clean them. Oh, God. You know, the the kind of bath where you'd have to have a shower after having it to make sure you were clean. Strange strange things, you know, wardrobes that smelt of urine. You know, weird things (laughs) like that. But uh, you ask yourself, what what on earth has happened here? And the only thing that often surprised me is that people hadn't been murdered in some of these places. I've lived certainly some old <laughs> pubs that I've been in over the years, to to say the very least. <laughs>
0: I, I gotta tell you, I I'm I'm going back to Victoria for a couple of weeks in January, and I'm genuinely terrified at what's going to happen at this place when I'm gone. Mm. Because there is one person who washes all the towels in the kitchen. That is me. Mm. There is one person who cleans the shower. That is me. There's one person who wipes down the cooktop. And I feel like I'm going to come back and what's not covered in crumbs will be on fire. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You'll just be sat there at home, flicking through the news channels. You'll just see a shot of the outside of the building, police cars. <laughs> Tonight on CDV. Breaking news. A flood of
0: sewage from the 28th floor of <laughs> the Dorchester building in downtown Montreal.
1: Dirty towel starts fire.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, God. There was one time that he finished doing the dishes and then he just crumpled up the, the rag and left it behind the sink. Mm. Oh, what smells like a dying animal? Oh, maybe it's <laughs> the rag full of mildew. Thanks, buddy. And he would have just kept it using, kept fucking cleaning his dishes with it and given himself clostridium or something. Yeah, well, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That has not been my experience. (laughs) Okay, Clostridium is a real thing.
1: (laughs) These next two stories are from Martin Caden's 1991 book, Ghosts of the Air, which we talked about quite a bit on Terror in the Skies. Gunner. This was one of the early legs of a wild and hysterical journey from Arizona to the Northeast then back on up to Gander, Newfoundland, to lead a formation of three B-17G bombers across the Atlantic to England. The purpose was to get the planes across the ocean in the last formation flight of these great queens from the United States to Gatwick, England, where the bombers would be used for the motion picture, The War Lover. Crazy a bunch of Americans, Englishmen, one Australian and one Apache Indian are never gathered together for this kind of flight before it ended we'd have a rousing battle with a russian crew in newfoundland a turbulent and frenetic ocean crossing a few emergencies in the azores be tossed into a secret police prison in portugal play chicken with some messerschmitts over spain well it was a butte, but that isn't this story what concerns us is the run from teterborough to logan one of the short hops of the flight Our bombers had been dragged from aircraft boneyards where they'd been dumped as surplus and were just about as worthless as pieces of machinery can get. They still wore their old markings, and beneath the scabby paint and sun broiled exteriors, you could still just make out serial numbers and other military identification. Inside the forts, you were in the original machine. Everything was raw, nothing was remotely close to pristine and a hell of a lot of it didn't work, but we were flying them across the ocean. We had two unexpected passengers on this run from Teterborough to Logan. A man named Bert Perlmutter and his teenage daughter. I knew Bert well. During the big deuce, he'd been a B-17 crewman, flight engineer and top turret gunner, and he'd flown some very heavy and terrifying missions against the best fighters in the Luftwaffe who were trying to kill him and everyone else aboard his plane. Bert knew of our flight and made a request. Let me fly with you guys up to Boston. I want to bring my daughter, show her just what it was like in the fortress, let her hear the sounds, feel the motions, let her taste the kind of history her old man lived in. I want to share that with her. We took them with us. There was no way to turn down that kind of request. Our Australian, a veteran of a hell of a lot of flying anything with wings, drove the fort from the left seat. Greg Bord went all the way back to flying with the Royal Australian Air Force out of Burma against the Japanese invasion through Asia. In those days, he flew the export version of a stubby, barrel-shaped American fighter called the Brewster Buffalo. It was a dog. Or the outcast cur from a pack of mongrels. A horrible machine to fly against the nimble Japanese Zero fighters whose pilots laughed and snickered when they saw the buffaloes trundling along like fat sows and then proceeded to shoot them to pieces. Greg survived all that. We took off from Tetbury in a formation of two, leaving one B-17G behind for some mechanical work to catch up with us later. It was a beautiful flight. Warm, about four-tenths cloud cover and cruising up the countryside at 7,000 feet. The fuselage interior was jammed with spare parts and huge B 17G tyres. You either sprawled on that jumble or stretched out on one of the two folding cots that swung down from the side of the airplane. Because there wasn't any need for machine gun mounts or the waste guns themselves, the two waste gunner positions had been sealed with plexiglass. Well, it was warm, and the fort bounced and rocked gently as we droned towards Logan and before too long the motion and the sun's slanting rays worked like a sleeping potion for the young girl. She stretched out on one cot, and her father on the other side of the fuselage did the same. In moments they were fast asleep. I had come back from the cockpit to talk with Bill Mason and Jim Now, who were photographing and recording the salient points of the flight. We sat on crates and attire, relaxing and smoking. Looking back from this position towards the tail turret, the interior of the fortress had a misty quality, the result of dust bouncing from aircraft motion and the sun slanting in at an angle. You see the dust itself, and everything gains an ethereal quality because of it. Then one man gaped as he looked back through the fuselage. Holy. The words failed to come. He stared wide-eyed at me and Bill Mason. I can't believe it. Am I really seeing what I think I'm seeing? I grasped Mason's arm. Don't answer. Obviously we're all seeing something. Write it down, but don't discuss it with each other. I don't want anyone affecting the thoughts of anyone else. We did just that, and that night on the ground we compared notes. First, everything written down by each man just about matched perfectly what the others had written. It is critical to emphasise that. Not until we compared our notes did we know what each of us had seen. Bert Perlmutter, fast asleep, was obviously in the grip of a powerful, even violent dream. Perspiration gleamed on his face. He was soaked through with perspiration. His face twitched. At moments, his mouth opened. And in his dreams, he was shouting or screaming. We couldn't tell which. At times, he seemed to be struggling physically. But it wasn't that that had gripped us. Almost hypnotized us in that ethereal light, as if we were peering through waving gauze, we saw dim shadows moving. two men in heavy flying suits wearing oxygen masks, each with his hand on a fifty caliber machine gun and in the waist position, calling out to one another, the guns visibly hammering shell casings flying through the air. Not a sound. Absolutely soundless to us, we watched the ghostly tableau of a battle raging in wartime skies. Phantom figures. We even saw the shell casings gleaming in the shafts of sunlight. Then one man lurched and moved with great effort, coming towards us, unrecognisable because of his leather helmet and oxygen mask. He supported another figure, who seemed to be barely conscious. It was difficult to make out any detail, but then, and we wrote it all down, we saw that one hand of this second man had been blown away and at the wrist there was only a stump. The other was half dragging him to the open space of the navigator's upward gun position where a single machine gun was mounted to fire upwards. This was behind the power turret just of the cockpit. We watched the man in the mask heave the other upward and shove the blood spurting arm into the screaming wind blast. At four or five miles high the temperature would have been 40 or 50 degrees below zero just what was needed to close off the ghastly wound and to freeze the arm to stop the spurting blood. Then there was a gasp, and Bert Perlmutter awakened, sitting upright, exhausted, soaked with sweat. He looked like hell. What's the tie-in, Mason asked in the hotel room that night. It's Bert, I said. But how? So I told them what only I knew at the time. Bert Perlmutter was a flight engineer, like I told you. In a fort just like this one. He also operated the upper power turret. Bert flew a bunch of missions. On one of them, well, it was Black Thursday. The killer raid on the Schweinfort in October of 1943. On that raid, one of his gunners had his hand blown off. Bert went back from his gun position to save the man's life. He dragged him back to the top fuselage opening, held him as high as he could, and stuck his severed arm into the windstream. Mason and the others stared at me. But, but that's exactly what we saw today in that plane. I know, I replied. The next question came in a hoarse whisper. But, but that would mean we were seeing his dream. Could be, I said. You give me a better explanation. Give me any explanation. We all saw the same thing. But, but, "'That's impossible. "'That's a materialisation of a dream, for God's sake.' "'Okay, it's impossible,' I agreed. "'Tell me then how what we saw what we did, "'and then explain to me that last little item.' "'No answer.' "'Just before Bert Perlmutter moved across the fuselage "'to awaken his daughter "'so that she could be strapped in for approach and landing, "'something on the floor of the fortress caught his eye.' The three of us watched him lean down and pick up an object. He held it up, studying it in the bright shaft of sunlight. We all saw it clearly. The casing of a 50 calibre round. Shiny. Brand new. It wasn't in the fortress when we took off from Teterborough. Bert turned it round and round. He shook his head slowly and placed the casing in a pocket and woke his daughter. They sat tightly together as we eased back to Earth and landed.
0: I love that story, Paul.
1: I love that book.
0: Yeah, that's me too. I will say, I know a couple of listeners wrote in and they said that uh, after the Terror in the Skies episode, where we talked about it quite a bit, and they said they found it kind of dull. And I will say, if there's a lot of plain minutia. Yes. But if you can kind of do, you know, just like skip through it and just sort of, skim the plain minutia and find this just get to the stories there yeah. is some brilliant stuff in there
1: yeah yeah he's one of those as well i think because it's some sometimes it can be a bit bit of a dry subject he's a brilliant interviewee if you oh, ever get okay. the chance to hear him talk about the book he did i think he did a couple of shows with art bell
0: that makes sense which is, time.
1: which is where i always had this book in sort of history until i magically found a wonderfully beautiful second-hand hardcover copy for for booger all (laughs) um so it is full of wonderful stories i mean there's a couple that i suspect are very tall tales but there's some of them like that one that just make you scratch your head and think "Eh, it's not just one person
0: it's so bizarre it's so bizarre i i would almost be tempted not to believe it but i don't know it's it's again it's such a great story i felt we had to include it
1: I mean, there are some absolutely hair-raising stories from what pilots went through during the Second World War. It's incredible. It really oh, yeah. is just unbelievable, some of the things that happened while they were up in the skies. You know, people flying in 500 miles over the English, English Channel on one engine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or even gliding in with no engines, just hoping for the best. You know, planes having to drop all their cargo over the. The English Channel, because they knew the chances, they couldn't land because there was a chance if they did land, the bombs would go off because their landing gear might collapse. Sure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and obviously, it's, uh, it's the starting point of one of the greatest films ever made as well. Which one? A Matter of Life and Death.
0: I know the Iron Maiden album. I don't know the film.
1: So it's a film about a bomber commander who is played by David Niven, Okay, And he has managed to get most of his surviving crew off his plane as they're coming in after a bombing raid over Europe. But there's no way the plane's going to make it and uh, they fly into fog. And as he's coming in, he starts talking to this American radio operator and they make an instant connection and the plane goes down over the channel and somehow Niven survives and is washed ashore. And is found by a cyclist and is taken to hospital and miraculously makes a full recovery. And he meets the radio operator and the spark of the conversation at, uh, at the point he thought he was going to die has ignited something in both of them. And so they start to spend a lot of time together and they go for a picnic. And as they're sat there having a beautiful picnic, suddenly Niven realizes that she's frozen. The birds have stopped singing. Oh no. And everything's turned black and white. And as he turns around, an angel has been sent from heaven to tell him that, unfortunately, because of the fog, they've made a mistake and he's supposed to be dead. So if he didn't mind, can you come back to heaven? Because we can't let you go because we've got one missing out the ledger. And oh. so it starts a story about how he refuses to go back to heaven because he's right. fallen in love. And he ends up having to plead his case in heaven to prove that he should be allowed to stay because it wasn't his fault and love conquers all. And it is a remarkably wonderful, wonderfully beautiful film that always brings me to tears. (laughs) It's incredible. It's amazing. It's one of those. It's very like Wizard of Oz. So the real world's color, but heaven's black and white. Oh,
0: fascinating.
1: It's amazing.
0: A Glitch in the Matrix This will be our final story for tonight. There's this young kid up in a Piper Cherokee in the Midwest, lollygagging around on a day with wonderful puffy white clouds surging higher with each passing hour, offering the kid with a still crisp pilot's ticket in his wallet a whole new playground. The kid is good, and he's making the most of it, swooping and spiraling and soaring amidst the building cloud mountains and rushing down the canyons. It's marvelous stuff, and soon some of the bigger cumuli are churning into dark boomers to be, but not yet. Now they still have vertical walls brilliant in the afternoon sun. The white clouds will darken, and they'll shove seven and ten miles high and begin to close ranks, and their lower ramparts will lose all their friendliness and spit tongues of lightning and dump Niagara's on unsuspecting pilots. But that's still another hour or two, and right now it's glorious. The youngster races along the edge of a high cloud canyon wall and he has enough speed to stand the red and white Cherokee on its wing and fly a curve that matches almost exactly the curve of the cloud. He'll come out on the other side and roll out to look for another playground before they all become elusive. The Cherokee goes up on its wing and the youngster eases in some more throttle to compensate for his lift sliding off to one side. He balances speed and lift and gravity so he'll have enough of what he needs to play out the vertical wingslide. Now he boosts around the cloud there and he's free of that wall and a great open space is before him and oh my god, directly in front of the shock pilot is a biplane doing just what he's doing, flirting with wind and sun and clouds, but unseen by one another as they rushed and danced in the air. They ended up heading directly at one another, perilously close. Both pilots did what pilots do at this sliver juncture between life and death, stamp on right rudder. Yoke all the way over and suck it back into the gut to slam through the tightest break to the right possible. They almost didn't make it. They flashed by one another, but not without scraping wingtips. An inch farther apart, they wouldn't have touched. An inch closer together, and they might have torn loose their wings. But they came just close enough for wingtips to scrape. The shocked, terrified youngster in the Cherokee had a blurred look at what he swore was a Newport. A Newport 28. A World War I biplane fighter? Uh, could be. People were rebuilding and flying every kind of antique these days. He put aside these thoughts. He had maneuvered so violently he'd kicked into a spin, and he chopped power and kicked rudder opposite to the spin turn and let the yoke forward freely, and the Cherokee came out. With control back in his hands, he swung about desperately, afraid he would see wooden fabric wreckage fluttering to the ground below. He went down beneath the clouds and circled the area in a wide pattern searching for smoke or wreckage or anything, a sign of where that Newport might be. Nothing. He tapped in the right frequencies on his radio and called the nearest field and reported what had happened, giving the time and his location. If that other plane had crashed, at least help would be on the way. Then he swallowed as he looked at the fuel needles starting to edge towards the Big E, and he flew to his home field and landed. He repeated his story. The field operator came out to look at the Cherokee wingtip, Sure enough, some paint had been scraped away, but no one had reported a plane down. No one knew of a plane or pilot missing. The young man's friends hooted and laughed, told him he scraped his wingtip on a runway light or a fence post, and he'd come up with all this blather just to cover his clumsiness. He took their jeers good-naturedly and didn't press the point anymore, but he damned well knew what he had seen and what he'd felt when the wingtips brushed. A couple months went by. The locals were part of a flying club that looked for old airplanes to rebuild. You never knew what some farmer might have in his barn. They'd even found a Grumman F-4F Wildcat, its 1,200-horsepower engine still good as new, stored in a barn by a farmer who quit flying 20 years before. So when you got a lead or a hot tip, you chased it down. I heard there's some old fighter plane in a barn. The word passed. A group drove off into the country, found the farm, talked to the farmer who allowed he did have an old plane in the hangar, but it had been there so long it couldn't be worth anything. To the people who restore these things, nothing is impossible. They'll take a basket case and turn it with hard work and money and volunteers into a sweet flying thing again. They went into the barn and gaped. There it was. A Newport 28 from the First World War. Or, rather, what was left of it. Tires flat, just gone. Fabric rotted off the wings and tail, the engine seized and tight, everything covered with dust and straw and bird droppings. It hadn't flown in twenty, maybe even forty years, but they were overjoyed. They touched the old ship, thrilled to her ancient lines. They walked around the left wing. They stopped. And they stared. Jaws dropped. On the wingtip of that Newport. That sagging, old, unflyable wreck that hadn't been airborne for years was a smear of red-and-white paint that looked impossibly bright against a drab wingtip. They knew about the kid in the Cherokee. They'd laughed about his story. Yet someone had the presence of mind to scrape off some of that brighter paint. Another pilot stood in the cockpit, leaned down to one side, and reverently brought up a musty, cracked, yellow-weathered old logbook thick with dust. There are two endings to this story, and they are both true. They sent the paint to a laboratory to determine its type and age. They also sent, separately, a scraping from the Cherokee. The paint samples were an exact match. They read the logbook, especially the last entry. They brought it carefully to another laboratory to confirm its age. About 30 years, maybe 40, was the answer. The paper, its condition, the ink that was used, now it's real all right and it's old, very old. They felt the cold chill settle on them all. That last entry had a pilot's notation on the line where he wrote the date and the time spent aloft. The pilot of that Newport noted he'd had a near collision with the strangest red-and-white machine of a type I have never seen or heard about before.
1: I'm a sucker for a ghost plane encounter.
0: Yes, sir. Especially something where, I mean the fact it's so vague does kind of make me wonder you know there's no names whereas like usually in, in Caden's other stories he's pretty specific about names mm. so yeah part of me wonders but fuck it it's a great story
1: yeah yeah reminds me of a a call art bell once took on one of his ghost to ghost episodes which was a pilot who was flying who saw a ghost plane just pop up oh. and he and he was his story he was saying that Something in the cockpit told him to watch out for it, and this plane just appeared from nowhere and then just vanished. Really? Mm, I've forgotten what year it was. And it was a really, and he was only a young lad as well. And uh, he still sounded very shaken by his experience, I have to say.
0: Yeah, no kidding. I'm shaken by it and I'm just thinking about it. (laughs) Well, folks, we went long on this one. Um, It's Paul and I got yakking so much. Uh, in between stories that uh, we've, we've run over time, so we're going to wrap it up. But we want to thank you for joining us for our Christmas episode, a glitch in the matrix. We hope we've had fun; we certainly have. And I guess, Paul, this is this is our final show of 2022. This is the end of our second year working together.
1: Yes, two years, my friend. Amazing, two really.
0: Years, it really is. Yeah, yeah. Our next episode will be the first of year three. <sighs>
1: Dun dun dun.
0: Well. Like I said, man, we've we had our best month ever. So we're clearly doing something right.
1: Yeah. No, it's so, been awesome. It doesn't seem like two years. I mean, what's happened in that time?
0: England played some football, I'm told. <laughs> oh, some. They <laughs> played more than Canada did.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: All right, folks. Well, thank you so much. Uh I guess we do we, we don't really have to do the C segment tonight, do we?
1: Yeah, it's Christmas. It is Christmas.
0: So yeah, we're just gonna we're just gonna edit here. Fuck it. That's what we're gonna do. Yeah. We can do whatever we want. We're magic. Mm-hmm. Although, you know what? Before we before we go, before we go, I am gonna play our mental health PSA because I know this is a yes. difficult time of year for some people. 100%. So we're gonna take a quick break for that, and then we'll be back to say goodbye. Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip fifteen seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope And there's always help.
1: We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now, because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be, it's never too late to reach out.
0: In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988.
1: In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT, that's S-H-O-U-T to 85258. In Australia, the number to call is Is 131114.
0: However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, please know that we've both been where you are and there is a way back to the world. Take care. And yeah, take care of yourselves folks. I know this can be a tough time of year for everyone, you know, and for for different reasons. So, you're never alone. Take care of yourselves and we'll see you next year with the properly formatted show because it will no longer be Christmas. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. And I'll, uh, you know, I always feel like Frank Cross at this time of year, not that I've sold my soul for success, but um I'm always a sucker for the for the tale of redemption at Christmas and I also think that sometimes Christmas is a good time to uh, bury old ghosts and look to the future in a more positive way.
0: Amen to that, man. After the last two years, I'm all for it. Definitely. All right, folks. Well, like I said, we will catch you in two weeks with... uh, No, that's you. (laughs) It's all falling apart, (laughs) man. If I don't have my structure, it all goes away. (laughs) I'm leaving all this in too. This is how how wild and woolly it gets here.
1: Freestyling.
0: That's it. All right.
1: Well, that's, that's what happens when you try to wish people a Merry Christmas. So, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, in the new year, but until then...
0: Into the darkness we go.
1: cat was scratching at the door so julie's got up to let her in and as soon as she's opened the door she's fucked off
0: (laughs) you have the best luck with random movies i tell you the only time i ever see a movie on randomly is when i turn on shutter and it's always the stepfather playing (laughs) i mean i like the stepfather but come on stored in a barn by a farm stored in a barn fuck me stored in the sentence is destroying me
1: fucking that's a different fucking cat (laughs)
0: i thought you were doing a bit about leaving because we've been working together for two years i'll start my own podcast with blackjack
1: and hookers i've just I've, i've started that conversation and i don't have a punchline
0: okay well let's just move on and i'll cut it out